Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we're at. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the last three verses of chapter 4 and jump into chapter 5 and look at 10 verses in chapter 5. Lots to cover. Um, chapter 4, 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. So before we begin, let me read to you the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and to sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Weakness, yeah. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So... Also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, By the way of just a short introduction, remember the letter, and this is really important, you keep this in the back of your mind. The letter was written to a Jewish community of Christians who were under severe persecution. And the author is writing this letter as a means of exhortation. Remember we said the word exhortation doesn't just mean encouragement. The word exhortation is used in chapter 3, chapter 12, and again in chapter 13, 22, toward the conclusion of this letter to describe the purpose of this letter. The writer says this, I appeal to you, brothers, at the end of the letter, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I don't know how brief it is, but briefly. The word exhortation means to call, to call alongside, to, to courageously speak truth. As we've been saying, the author has been courageously speaking the truth by proclaiming both warnings and wonder. The wonder is the, the, the supremacy and the, the sufficiency and the, the, the superiority of Christ. And the warnings that we looked at last week, the past couple weeks actually, is not to follow the way of ancient rebellion rebellious Israel. Now, I I must say, whether it was Israel or any other people group, we're all a bunch of hardheads, so let's not pick on them. It would have been any people group would have done the same thing. 
But God in his grace called them to himself. If remembers chapter 1 and 2, the theme was Christ's deity and his humanity and his superiority over angels. We looked at chapter 3 of Hebrews. We saw Christ's superiority over Moses. That's why our title is Jesus is Better. And we got to the end of chapter 4, looking at the warnings and exhortations. We saw that Christ is superior over Joshua. Remember the story. We come to the end of that chapter, the end of chapter 4, and all of chapter, well, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. The author wants us to know that Jesus is not only superior to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, but Jesus is superior over the priests, the high priests. Okay, that's, that's kind of where we're going. Not only the Old Testament priests, but this Levitical system. Now, if you remember, Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 13, he gives us warnings, as I mentioned. He gives us warnings. Be careful that we don't follow ancient Israel's rebellions and fail to enter into God's rest. Right? Into God's rest. The, the whole idea of resting has to do with not only the Sabbath rest of God, but also this idea that the people of God were called out of Egypt and they would go to the promised land where they would find rest, security and safety and provision of God. It's temporary, and it was temporary because they rebelled, but it it was supposed to be a picture of rest. As we know from the story that many of the people who left bondage of Egypt failed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Because of rebellion, they were grumbling against God. And we were exhorted last week to press onward in our difficulties, in our struggles, in our trials. That we are not to grumble against God, not to harden our hearts against God, but we are to rely upon Him. And the author said over and over, this day, today, don't harden your hearts. Today, trust Him. Learn to lean on Him today. Chapter, three, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. We are to strive also into this rest. That we as Christians are, are, are experiencing the rest of our salvation. That Christ has done all the work. So we believe in a works-based salvation. I believe in a works-based salvation. The fact is, we don't have to do the work. Christ did the work for us. Right? So we enter into that rest. We believe the gospel. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we rest in the work of Christ. But there's also a rest when we see him face to face. And between that time, we are to strive in belief, in trusting and relying on Christ and the gospel. In contrast to the whole generation of unfaithful Israelites who failed to trust God, who failed to rely upon God's provision, who failed to enter the promised land and the safety and security, we, believers in Christ, are to strive in faith because we've received the benefits Of the work of Christ. And our lesson this morning, the author goes from this dire warning of not entering to rest because of unbelief to a word of of, of encouragement. Speaking of Jesus being the high priest, Martin Luther said this after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. Right? First alarm, now comfort. How? How does he do this? How does our author do it this morning? By stating, look with me in chapter 4, verse 16. This is the center of the passage. By stating that Jesus, our high priest, because Jesus is our high priest, we can, verse 16 of chapter 4, can confidently 
draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in help, to help in the time of need. Chapter 4, verse 16, mark it in your Bibles. That's the center of this passage. That We have a high priest. His name is Jesus. He's not only our high priest, uh, he is our high priest that we now can be confident because of all that he has done and all of who he is. What he's done and who he is. So this morning, this is what I want to do. We're going to talk about Jesus being our high priest and, and why we can be confident to go to him as our high priest. Okay, does that make sense? Well, what I want to do is I want to do a little bit differently. What I want to do is I want to jump immediately to chapter 5. What I want to do is because the author in chapter 5, verses 1 through, um, 1 through 4, speaks about the qualifications of the high priest. So I, want to, I want to talk about that. You may not know what that means. I want to talk about the qualification of the high priest, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And after we look at the qualification, we'll look at Jesus as our high priest, his, the, his identification. We'll go back a couple of verses. We'll look at chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, and we'll go back to chapter 5. I'll explain. I'll have the verses up there. So we'll look at the qualifications of the high priest, the identification of Jesus as our high priest, and then we'll end in verses 7 through 10 and look at Jesus. He's our salvation, the high priest of our salvation, okay? I hope to explain it well. I hope I don't lose y'all. So number one, look with me in chapter 5, verse 1, the qualifications of our high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To do what? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, that is the high priest of Israel, can deal gently with the ignorant, thank goodness, and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay? James Orr, he's the, uh, the writer of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, says this about a priest. He says, a priest is one who is duly authorized to minister in sacred things, particularly to offer sacrifices at the altar and who acts as a mediator between man and God, end quote. The Hebrew word for priest, Cohen, is used 700 times in the Old Testament. The word, the verb, um, the, the word associated with the verb means to stand. And it refers to the duties of the priest as he stands as a representative. Priest stands as a representative before God as a mediator and representative for man before God. The Levitical priesthood, if you're not familiar with the Levitical priesthood, began with Aaron, who's the um, older brother of Moses. His descendants, Aaron's descendants, served as priests in Israel. They ministered in that day in the tabernacle, which was temporary, and then they ministered in the temple when the temple was built, okay? The, 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 the Levitical priests bore the responsibilities of offering sacrifices according to the law of Moses. They cared for the religious articles within the tabernacle, within the temple. They were involved and, and oversaw the worship activities. They instructed the people concerning the ordinance of God and, and how to worship. And the term Levitical, I use the term Levitical priesthood, comes from the tribe of Levi. That's where we get Le Leviticus, or, or the Levites from, the, or the Levitical priesthood. 
Levi, if you remember, if you know anything about the 12 tribes, Levi was the third son of Leah and Jacob, and according to Genesis 29, is the father of the tribe of Levi, okay? 12 tribes, tribe of Levi, the tribe of Moses and the tribe of Aaron. God, in the 12 tribes, chose that tribe to himself and the sons of Aaron and the tribe of Levi to himself to be the priests, Okay? So all priests had to be from the the Levi tribe. Not all Levites were priests, but that's where they had to come from. And they were intercessors. They ministered in the temples. They offered up sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. And God, in the Old Testament, promised the nation of Israel, he promised that he would meet them in the tabernacle through this mediation. Exodus 29, I will consecrate the tent of meetings, God says, and the altar, and I will consecrate, I will set aside Aaron and his sons, the Leviticus, the the Levi uh, tribe, to minister as priests to me, okay? The high priest was among the the priests of Levites, of the Levites, and the Levite priest was was, was the chief priest, let's say, the head of among all the other priests, and only the high priest from the tribe of Levi was allowed to enter into the holies of holies. And we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, to offer uh, atonement for sin. So every year on the day of Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, he would offer sacrifices for the sins of Israel. He was the priest, as I said, the chief priest, the high priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. He had a special degree of holiness. If the high priest sinned against the people, he actually would, would have brought guilt upon the whole people because he was the representative of the people. In fact, the high priest had to go through this elaborate seven-day ritual of bathing and putting special garments, anointing with oil and with blood. And, and you could see this high priest who was chief among the priests was very important in the life of the church. But the high priest in Israel was never meant to be permanent. Okay? Never meant to be permanent. And according to this text and the rest of scripture, a couple things we notice we need to know about these priests. Number one, they did not decide, carefully, listen, the Levite tribe did not themselves decide they were going to be mediators. They didn't break up in 12 tribes and say, okay, you guys, you guys be the mediators. That's not what happened, as I said. They were chosen among men, but appointed by God. Look what our text tells us, especially in verse 1 and verse 4. They were chosen uh, among men, appointed by God, who will offer the gifts and the sacrifices for our sins. Now, this is 2019. You're thinking, well, what has this got to do with us? Let, let, me, let me point out two important things according to this, according to the, the, the scriptures. Number one. This tells you and I this morning that you cannot decide on your own, okay? You cannot decide on your own how you're going to approach a holy God. You can't go according to your standard. We approach God according to his discretion. You don't make it up on your own thinking. You don't have your own plans and your own purposes and say, I'm just going to go do this any old way I want, Right? That's why Old Testament priests had a lot of washings and, and cleansing and, and these changing of clothes. What was the point? It was to show them and to show you this morning that sin contaminates. Sin corrupts. Sin defiles. It makes us unapproachable to a holy God. The second thing it teaches us that 
the high priest and the priest had to be among men. Had to be a man. Angels could not mediate. Angels could not mediate. A priest had to partake of the nature of the persons for whom he officiates and whom he mediates for. Therefore, there needed to be an identification with the one you're mediating on behalf of. You had to be human. The high priest would act for the people as necessary for him to be human, chosen among men as representatives to give gifts and sacrifice on our behalf. That's why when we get to Hebrews 10, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Some of you thinking, I know a couple of bulls and goats, but no, they're human, and you need a human representative. But there's a problem. The priest of the Old Testament identify with us to the point of being sinners like you and like me. And they needed to sacrifice, according to our text, for their own sins. Verse 2 and verse 3. Just as the people were plagued with sin, so also the high priests were plagued with sin. He was obligated, before he can go into the Holy of Holies, to sacrifice for his own sins. Then he can go in and sacrifice for the sins of the people in this most holy of holies, the center of this temple. He was tarnished. He had to sacrifice for his own sins. Now, Again, 2000, almost 2020, you're thinking, okay, mediation, temple, all right, I understand God is holy, I understand maybe I can't walk into his presence, but do I really need a mediator? Have you ever bought or sold a house before? What'd you do? You got a lawyer, right? You ever did a will and testament, what'd you do? You got someone on your behalf to write the letter, whatever need, to the courtroom, right? Have you ever gone to court even for a speeding ticket? Nowadays, you just go because they want to cut down nothing so they can get the money. But usually, uh, when you get a speeding ticket, you're like, you know what? I'm going to pay somebody a couple hundred dollars, save me from the points. Shouldn't be speeding anyway, but that's another issue. What if you received a letter in the mail tomorrow? Stamped by the United States government IRS. Report to the courthouse, the federal courthouse, because the IRS has found that you owe them so much money, they're taking your house, they're threatening to take your house, take your 401k, and everything you have, they're going to take. Are you going to that courthouse alone? I'll, just, I'll be all right. No, I don't think so. I know I'm not. That's scary. They have a lot of power and a lot of overreach. You're like, no, I'm not going. I'm getting a lawyer that is very well equipped with IRS law because I am not fighting the government, right? I need a mediator. Why would we think that we could stand before a holy judge who knows the intent and purposes of our hearts, who knows our, our, our sin, who is holy, who is just, and must judge us because of his holiness, that we could think that we're going to go stand before him on judgment day all alone. I don't need a mediator. I don't need a mediator. I could do this. You can't. That's the point. That's the point of mediators. But praise God, we have a perfect mediator. His name is Jesus. And as we see the qualifications of this 
these high priests, we can see how beautiful the identification of Jesus is our high priest. Look with me to chapter 4, verse 14. Just back a few verses. Who is this Jesus? Who is that mediator? Who is our high priest? Since, verse 14 of chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So what the author is doing right up front is he is stressing the deity and humanity of Christ, and he is comparing between who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, his his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven against the regular, I wouldn't say regular, but against the ceremonial priest of the Old Testament, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in comparison to the high priest. And we're going to get into this more as we get down the book of, of Hebrews, but let, let me explain to you about this high priest a little bit more in more detail about the Holy of Holies so you can see what this author is talking about. The high priest once a year. Now, if you know anything about the temple, there was an outer court, an inner court, uh, a gent- court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles would come to the temple and worship. As you get closer into the middle, there was the court of women, the court of men, and then there was what's called the Holy of Holies. It was separated from the rest of the temple as a place that once a year, only the high priest would enter in one day a year, day of atonement, and order sacrifices for the, for the sins of the people in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, the presence of God would come down on that day. And inside the Holy of Holies, the, 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 the high priest would go in, there would be the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? If you remember the from Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant was a box with rings. They would carry it with poles. And on top of the box, there was a cover. And on top of the cover, there was golden cherubims that represented the glory of God. And on the, the box, under, inside the box, would be the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law written by God. And every year, the, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would sacrifice and bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it upon the box as God from heaven in his holiness and justice looked down on the, 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 the covenant, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and he would see the broken laws that Israel had done, but he would see the blood interposed between the broken laws and a holy God. And he would, in that moment, the high priest would propitiate, we talk about that word, for the people. In other words, he would turn aside, he would turn aside the, 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 uh, his wrath against God's people and he would, he would treat them as forgiven people. When the blood was offered, God's wrath was propitiated, turned aside, and the author is saying right here, he's he's talking about that that sacrifice, and he says, we don't have a high priest who mediates in the Holy of Holies, this man-made place within the temple, within the center of the temple, that that would be sinners who would have to sacrifice themselves and sacrifice for other people. No, we have Jesus. We have Jesus, that's his human name, who passed through the heavens, the Son of God, that's the same nature, the, the deity of Christ. We have Jesus, the great high priest, the better high priest, the, the more superior high priest who shed his blood as a human and his divine nature as God himself can forgive us of our sins and he has passed through the heavens. Unlike Aaron who was in this place, Jesus goes to the heavenly courts. That's what he's talking about here. He is great because he is not sinful. He's not going into a man-made holy of holies once a year. He is going through the heavens into a, 
into a true and better tabernacle. Do you see that? The heavenly throne room of God where he offered his blood once and for all. So unlike Aaron, who didn't even enter into the promised land, this temporal place of land, Jesus goes into glory, into the heavens, who intercedes for us as our high priest, not in man-made building, but in heaven itself. That, that's the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is to show us that our high priest, who has passed through the heaven, lives today, in this moment. He has continual and immediate access to God, day and night. Hebrews 7, 25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, that's something that we can be confident in. Hold fast to that confidence. He's telling the Jewish audience, listen, don't go back to, that, to, that, to those rituals, to the inferior system. When you have Christ, don't go back to that which was promised. Go back to the promised one. Don't go back after what was longed after. Go back, go Go into the presence of Christ. Do, do, do you see how important that is? Do you see how important it is that we have access, we could approach boldly into the presence of God where once we were separated from him? The Jewish people, I think, in that day who were under persecution, I think they, they, they probably were under such pressure and persecution and trial, that they, they, they began to see uh, with rose-colored glasses that that way is better. Like the Israelites, when they, they were in bondage, and they were set free. It's like, oh, it wasn't all that bad. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Don't, don't go back to that. And, and, and we're told to hold on. We're told to hold on. And, and, and family, you say, all right, well, this is 2020, Okay. There's, where are you finding your hope? Where are you finding your strength? Where are you finding the, the, the needs that you have that Christ has met in other things? Or do you see that Jesus' presence before the Father continues is a place in which we'll hold on to that. We'll confess, look at the text says, confess Jesus, he is our high priest. He is the one who secured our salvation. Christ is always eternally present, mediating on your behalf before the Father. That sin that Luke just committed, and he opens up his portfolio of Good Friday. Always, ever present. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not only goes before the presence of God, but now we have a high priest who, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So the author is saying, look, I know this, this eternal Christ has gone into the presence of God. How could he possibly identify with me? How could, how could this God-man who passed through the heavens, who is in the very presence of God eternally, understand where I'm coming from? He says, our high priest is not aloof to our realities. Our divine high priest is not incapable of sympathizing with you this morning, with me this morning. The king we worship, the king we love, the king we serve, the Savior to whom you look to is not indifferent from your trials, your hardship, and feels them with familiar understandings. He's not disinterested. 
He's not disinterested. He came to earth. He took on human nature so that he might now be able to identify with us, with our feelings and with our trials. Now, in our text, it says he is Jesus is one who is every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. Has been tempted as we are. So the answer to how can he sympathize with a poor, wretched sinner like me? How can Christ be glorious, obedient high priest, sympathize with your weakness and my weaknesses? He gives us the answer. He's been tempted as we've been tempted. Therefore, he's very able to represent you before the throne of his heavenly father, pleading your cause, securing your place, and acquiring the spiritual resources you need in trouble. He became human. He had all the limitations that you have. He was tired. He was hungry. He got angry, yet without sin. Yet without sin. But let's not underestimate his humanity. He felt the struggles. He knows the temptation. Matthew 4, we see a specific temptation. Satan comes to him after he hasn't eaten for 40 days and offers him bread. You know the story. It says Jesus was tempted in every respect. If that does not mean that every single type of, or every single particular temptation Jesus has felt, right? So Jesus was never a woman, may not understand in, in a particular sense of what she may be going through. It was never an elderly, what some of the elderly go through and some of the temptations they have. But what it's saying is that every single temptation, every single temptation has a foundational reality that Jesus has gone through. I mean, can you imagine the temptation into, to sin when Jesus was rejected, hated, betrayed, grieved, pain, had pain and torture and death and was misunderstood? You see, the foundation of every single temptation, Jesus has experienced. And yet, without sin. I was reading this week, I don't know where I got this, but he talked about the suffering and the temptations, and in suffering and in our temptation, is somewhat relative to our experience. And what it means is this. If we went to Cotui a few years back and we saw a lot of poverty, if that's all you know, and you know nothing else, and you've seen nothing else, you're, you're suffering. But it's really dependent on what you know. If you have left the palace and lived in, in extreme wealth and then lived in that way, you'd still be suffering, but what a difference, right? Here's Jesus. In glory, in heaven, in glory. The grandeur of glory in heaven and yet experienced, which none of us can experience, the darkness of rejection, hatred, and betrayal and was killed. Now, temptation is not sin, right? Being tempted is not sin. It, it, sin happens when temptation comes and we fail. And we, we buy into it in our actions, in our thoughts, in our motives, in our minds. Uh, what, what I mean by that is you can, you can really hate someone and not kill them, but yet Matthew 5 says that's sin. You can have lust in your hearts, but not physically commit adultery, but the Bible calls that sin. So Jesus was tempted, but he never crossed the line. He never sinned. 
But isn't that a great reason not to give up? That Christ is ever-present, the God-man ever-present, enduring what we have gone through, yet without sin, without falling into sin. And now in his righteousness, he is before the throne of God, granting us access to the Father. He has passed through the heavens. He is present. He is sympathizing with our weaknesses. And yet every single temptation, he doesn't sin. What a Savior. What a high priest who's passed through the heavens, who sympathizes, who's been tempted, yet without sin. That's our high priest. Now, turn with me to chapter 5. Remember we said in the first few verses, the qualification of the priest was he must be a man. He must, he must act on behalf of men. He must, he must uh, offer sacrifices. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 5. We're continuing on this identification. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, a high priest. He was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, you are perfect, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So this is what the author's saying. The author's saying that Christ himself, we know that from the gospel accounts, right? We know that Christ says, I have come to do the will of my father and the father has sent me. I only do what my father shows me. I only do what my father wants me to do. In fact, John's gospel, the gospel according to John, 33 times Jesus says, the father sent me, the father sent me, the father sent me. Okay? And here we see, as very important for this author to know that Jesus identifies with us, identifies with us as human, but he also has been appointed by God. And he quotes two verses. Your first, there, your first verse, look with me in chapter 5. Better get there. Verse 5, if you notice, it's in the middle of the margin of your Bible. You are my son, today I've begotten you. That comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. So he's quoting Psalms chapter 2, verse 7. The next verse where it says, you are my son, today I've begotten thee, comes from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. So he's quoting Psalm 2, and he's quoting Psalm 10 to prove that Jesus is truly our high priest. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because the, the priest came from what lineage? From what, from what family? Levi. The Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so he's identifying Jesus not from the tribe of Judah as the regular Levite comes, but by the tribe of uh, from, from Melchizedek, from, from the priestly line of Melchizedek. Very important, okay, very important. Second quotation is a little bit more difficult. Um, he talks about Melchizedek. Uh, chapter 7, we're going to get into Melchizedek. Let me just tell you, he's the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God, Genesis 14. He meets Abraham, and after Abraham, um, uh, in Genesis 14, uh, has victory over the eastern kings. He comes and offers a sacrifice to this, to this Melchizedek, this priest king, who's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Genesis 14. A thousand years later, he shows up in Psalm 10, which I just read to you, with no real explanation other than the psalm speaks of this messianic role, this, this king, this, this one who will reign and rule. And then in chapter 4 of, excuse me, verse 4 of chapter 10, it says that, he is a, a priest over the order of Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek, Genesis, Psalms, once, and then that's all you hear of him until Hebrews. And as I said, what's, what's important is that Jesus, although he came from the tribe of Levi, he is now what? He has now been called by God through the order of Melchizedek. 
Okay? And what that's, what that's telling us, and we'll just briefly hit this because we're going to look at Melchizedek later on, is that God's appointment of Jesus, God's calling of Jesus, was his sovereign purposes. That God called Melchizedek as a foreshadow to show us that Jesus was going to come, not from the tribe of, uh, of, of Levi, but tribe of Judah, but comes in the order of this priest king. Okay? You following me? That he was sovereignly appointed. And it's very important that the Jewish people understand that if he's going to be your high priest, he comes from, not from the, the Levi, but comes from this mystery man who's king and priest. Okay? That's number one. That's very important. The second thing that's really important is Melchizedek comes on the scene and then he leaves. Melchizedek is a man. He's still temporary. And Jesus comes in under the order of Melchizedek and he is what? Eternal. So Jesus is the eternal priest. He's the eternal king under the order of Melchizedek, which means Jesus is not only greater than angels and Moses and Joshua and high priest, but also Aaron. They die. Jesus lives forever. So, so as we wrap up this point, Jesus, our high priest, is ever present before the throne of God. He is both human and divine. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's tempted as we are, yet without sin. Has been appointed and called by God as the eternal king and the eternal priest who never dies, who always intercedes for us forever, always, and eternally mediating on behalf of your children. Why would you go anywhere else? That's the point. Why would you go anywhere else? That's our high priest. Now look what he's done. Lastly, salvation. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of what? His reverence. Even though Jesus was totally without sin, did this, not, this did not make him exempt from the frailty of human experience. It actually caused him to pray. He was affected with heartache and grief like you are today. He's connected with that. He's connected with our human experiences. And his prayer life showed us that Jesus himself was dependent upon God to meet his needs and to sustain him. How much more, brothers and sisters, that we need to be in prayer to our mediator, to our high priest who's ever before the presence of God. It says in the days of his flesh, it doesn't mean just one single day, but during his ministry, his humanity, he wrestled and prayed and cried out with tears. It was a lifetime of warfare because he became like one of us. I mentioned this earlier. There are those who deny the deity of Christ that teach heresy, like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, but there are those on the other side that deny Jesus' humanity. Even today, some of the spiritualists today will deny that Jesus was fully human. Okay? He's not like Superman. Okay? When Superman only looked human, right? When he hid behind his really wonderfully hidden human disguise, his glasses. (laughs) But he was from another galaxy. He wasn't really human. Jesus was fully human. And that's what our author is trying to get at. And there, but, but, but was there a specific time? Was there, was there a specific time in his humanity that he cried out with tears to him who could save him from death? What does that remind you of? Gethsemane. 
His full humanity in full display. His authentic human agony as he approaches the cross. Mark chapter 14 says that Jesus was deeply distressed. That means terrified, surprised. As he considered the cross, he was astonished with horror. Mark says that he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I mean, to the threatening of his life. Mark goes on to say about this terror, uh, this, this fear, this, I would say, this, this, this terror, terrified surprise. It says in Mark chapter 15, I believe it is, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it be possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's praying to the one who could save him from death. And the inner circle of disciples see Jesus falling prostrate on the ground. Drops of blood flow from his brow. The anguish was not primarily the brutal physical death. Although being crucified, no one could even imagine that. But his agony was the physical, spiritual, emotional, suffering anguish and distress of drinking the cup. The cup, the judicious, righteous, holy, hot wrath of God against sin. It says that when he cried out in that day, look what it says. This is so, family, listen to this. It says he was heard, why? Because of his reverence. That word reverence is not the usual word that would be translated fear. It's a different word. It, it's a, th- that word means to carefully, respectfully handle something. It has to do with pious and devotion of, uh, of character, a, a, a willing, reverent submission. Isn't that what Jesus did in the garden? And here's the thing. When you and I pray, you hear this all the time, we come and we pray in what name? In our own name? In King's Chapel's name? No, we pray in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only reason we have to go before the Father, that we come in the blood and the work and the merits of Christ. Right? We don't go. We just learned about that. We can't walk into the presence of God. We are sinners and he is holy. So we come what? We come by grace through the merit of Christ. We are not heard in our prayers before the Father because we deserve to be heard. But here Christ is interceding because he's heard because of his merit. Because of his work. Because his reverent submission to the Father. He's earned the right. His son deserves to be heard. Talk about being confident in our high priest. When Christ comes to the Father, it is not the same kind of intercession as ours. He's earned and deserves the right to be heard. His obedience, his godliness, his piety. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, being made complete, To bring to the end, that's what the word means. He became what? The source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This does not mean that Jesus passed from disobedience to obedience through suffering. That's not what it means. Nor does it mean that he advanced from being imperfect to being perfect because of suffering. Jesus did not need to be taught Obedience because he was disobedient at some point. Hebrews and the rest of the scripture is clear. He never sinned. Rather, 
As Jesus experienced the trials associated with human existence, he learned how to obey his Father in them through suffering even without sin. Suffering taught Jesus how to submit to his will and to his Father's will. Learning obedience through suffering, listen, was a prerequisite for becoming a qualified and sufficient and perfect source of eternal salvation. This means that Jesus' suffering stands as a basis, part of the basis and grounds for our salvation. Calvin wrote this, he said this, He, Jesus, became the author of our salvation because he made us just just in the sight of God when he remedied the disobedience of Adam by contrary act of obedience. Okay, this should jar you this morning. This should jar you not to turn back to the inferior work of anything, any kind of salvation system, whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're relying upon. And, and what the Hebrews author is saying, look what he says last, that we ought to obey him. Look what it says there in verse uh, 9. To all who obey him, it doesn't mean following the commandments. Do the right thing, follow the commands, and you will then be saved. That's not what he means when it says obey him. What he means by obey him, it means being obedient. It's the obedience of faith. That's what it means. And we see that in John. This is the work of God, Jesus said, that you believe in the one whom sent me. Family, have you responded to the gospel? Have you obeyed the call of God to to turn from your sins and to trust him for your salvation? That's what he's talking about. He is our great meteor. He is our high priest. He has gone before us. He has taken on humanity. He had died for our sins, and he's calling everyone everywhere to obey his command, to repent of sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in his work, his meritorious work of the cross. That's what he's saying. So now we're going to end with this. The assurance of our faith is the fact that Christ himself is a priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. We have the assurance of our salvation. Our standing before God is rooted in the priesthood of Christ. Right? We, we already talked about that. Here's the center verse. And stay with me another two minutes and the band will come up. I want you to hear this. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Now we know why the author says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence, family, let us with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We are confident to draw to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need because Jesus is our high priest. He's the supreme, superior, all-sufficient high priest. He did not enter into man-made temples, but went into heaven itself before the presence of God. He's fully man, fully human, sympathizing with us. He has conquered sin. He had conquered death. He obeyed the Father completely. He's been called as the eternal son, the eternal king, to act on behalf of men. We are confident to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need because Jesus, our high priest, is supreme, superior, cried out to God. He was heard because of his reverence, his obedience, and he will usher us into his presence daily, continually, and he's earned that right by his obedience and his death and resurrection. We are confident to draw near 
to find help, to find mercy, because our high priest is our source of eternal salvation. Where do you go? Where do I go in time of need? Where are we going in a time of mercy? Where are we going when we need grace? Go to our high priest. He has made the way for you. See your circumstances, your trials, your hardships and difficulties through the perfect, spotless, supreme, superior, satisfying work of Christ. Everything else will pale and diminish if we keep our eyes upon him. He is ever present to give you the help you need. He is ever present to give you the grace and the mercy you need in all your circumstances, in all your trials, in all your persecution, in all of what you're going through. That's our high priest. Worship him, trust him, rely upon him this morning. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for this beautiful, magnificent, glorious picture for us this morning. God, may we never turn away from that. May may those in this room who are running to other things to find their satisfaction turn to you for their ultimate satisfaction. Let them trust in you, rely upon you, Lord Jesus, as our perfect priest who always intercedes, who lived the perfect life, and invites us to come and to rest in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.